Welcome to episode number two of the Artists of Motion podcast. On today's show, we feature Dr. Ron Chappelle of the Marshall Science University. Dr. Chappelle has been training since he was nine years old and has had the opportunity to work with and learn from some absolute giant names in the martial arts. Hear about training with Ark Wong, hear about the foundations of the Black Karate Federation, and what he's currently doing these days with the MSU. We recorded this one shortly after his birthday in 2017, and as usual, Doc was a font of information. Here we go. All right, welcome to our podcast today. Uh, today I'm interviewing Dr. Ron Chappelle of the Marshall Science University. How you doing, Dr. Chappelle? I'm hanging in there for an old guy. Yeah, you just celebrated a birthday not too long ago, if memory serves. Uh, yeah, but we don't want to talk about that. Well, we're not going to go into specifics, but happy related birthday regardless. Well, so, no, it's just, you know, you, you get older you get, the less you want attention you want to pay to those birthdays. <laughs> well, you know, when you that, cross that, seven. There's a good one for you. <laughs> so what's your most memorable birthday as it relates to anything in the martial sciences? I really don't have one. Uh, birthdays, you know, throughout my life I've, work so much and uh, birthdays and those things just kind of slide right by you you know uh, holidays you know being in law enforcement those things just they just bypass you you know you're so accustomed to being on the job or being assigned somewhere when everyone else is doing something else you, you just kind of get numb to it after a while and that especially includes birthdays okay so it's never enough. been a never been a big thing for me fair enough so, taking off from the birthday topic, so how about uh, giving us a little bit of your background? Where, you know, where'd you start training? What'd you do? And where are you at today? Uh, well, gee, I, I started out pretty young. I was around 10 years old when I started. Uh, I started with uh, Sifu Ark Wong in uh, Los Angeles, Chinatown. Uh, that was my beginning, and uh, in many ways it kind of set the tone for everything I did after that because uh, it was my association with Ark Wong that took me to uh, ultimately Ed Parker and also uh, allowed me to uh, have an association with uh, Hayamea Lafiti who was also a great influence on Ed Parker. He was actually Ed Parker's senior at Ark Wong's uh, and along the way uh, because of the era that I grew up I had the opportunity to train and to know and actually be friends with so many people that would be considered uh, giants in the martial arts world today, uh, from Haritaka Nishiyama to Nakayama to Oshima, Kubota on the Japanese side of the scale, on the Chinese side, Jimmy Wu. And there's two Jimmy Wu's, James H. and James W. Wu, uh, one from Sansu and one from uh, Tai Chi. And it just goes on and on and on. All of these people were within a half-hour drive of uh, where I lived. That's just the way things were in those days. Everyone was here and everyone was open and willing to share. So the impact on a, a, a budding young martial artist was great. And so from there, uh, my influence... Uh, comes from Ed Parker. After Ark Wong, it's definitely Ed Parker. And that's kind of like how I got where I am today. 
And there were some, obviously some other teachers along the way, but none of them as significant as those two. So tell us about uh, your early training with Ark Wong. And then how, you said that dovetailed into how you met Ed Parker. So how did that happen? Well, it, it didn't really, there wasn't really any real connection there in the beginning because we weren't there at the same time. But when I ultimately met Ed Parker, when I told him where I was from, his eyes lit up. And it wasn't actually until much later that I found out that he even was in Ark Wong School. He never made a big deal about it. He never really told me. It was just something that kind of casually came up in conversation many years later. And I was like, oh. But it also helped me to understand why he knew what I was about, why he knew what my real martial background was, and why he understood some of the things that I was trying to express to him that I had learned previously. And that was significant because Ark Wong taught traditional Chinese martial arts. And he was very, very good at it, but he didn't speak English that well unless he wanted to. <laughs> which is a story in and of itself. And so, you know, you're doing all these forms and things, but he's not really explaining in any great detail what it is that you're doing. You're just kind of doing movements. And it was Ed Parker who would begin to break those movements down and explain them and put them in context for me. And that was huge. And without his, his own experience with Art Wong, he wouldn't have been able to do that for me. So the two biggest influences then are the Chinese lineage from both uh, Grandmaster Wong and Grandmaster Parker. Absolutely. So that took you to where Not, you're at today, which is where? Uh, I don't know. Where am I? You know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, since Mr. Parker's passing, I've continued on the work that he and I started together. And uh, it's, it's been an interesting journey. It was started in the early 70s where he began to uh, talk about certain, certain ideas and principles, and he had put himself in a position where he didn't have the opportunity to write a lot of the stuff down, and so he would sound things off of me, which was incredible. And I was so young and naive at the time, I didn't even realize what he was doing, but he was constantly feeding me information and guiding me in, in a certain direction, which is why we've always been a little bit, shall we say, different from what everybody else was doing under his influence. We had a similar background, so I guess that's why uh, I was so lucky to, to get a lot of the information that many didn't get a chance to see. That's outstanding. It's, I, I always love hearing the stories about the, you know, back in the day when you first met the person who had such a big impact on you in your lives. Just, it's amazing to hear everybody's stories. Oh, yeah. Um, I met him at... I'm trying to remember whether it was a tournament or exhibition. It probably was both because it was at Santa Monica. And the tournament was held on stage in the audience, of course. You know, it was like a movie theater with a stage. And there was this tournament on stage. And it was, uh, you know, I ended up being there because one of the other teachers uh, that influenced me was C.O. Choi, who was at the time the Grandmaster of Hapkido. He opened up the first Hapkido school in, uh, in the United States, and it happened to be on Crenshaw and Jefferson, which is like, you know, a few minutes from where I was living at the time. And his number one guy was a, a guy named Henry Liu, 
and Henry Liu was competing in this competition, and that's how I ended up there. And uh, what happened was there was an intermission, and the lights came up, and all the, the big wheel martial artists were walking around and shaking hands with people. And I was just, I was just stunned. Oh, wow, there's, that's Ed Parker. And he was working his way through the crowd, and I was just standing there just watching him. And I guess he noticed that I was watching him because he walked over to me and he stuck his hand out and said, Hi, I'm Ed Parker. And uh, I stuck my hand out and shook his hand and mumbled something stupid, you know, because I, I was, you know, I knew I was in the presence of martial arts royalty, <laughs> and I was only 16 years old, so it was a it was a big deal for me. We'll, we'll go, we'll we go ahead and bleep that age just so nobody can back calculate your age for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were training with Ed Parker shortly after you met him there at the at the exhibition. And in that same time frame then also happened the Black Karate Federation, correct? Yeah, pretty close, pretty close. Um, we, at that time, I was working uh, at Manual Arts High School. And Manual Arts High School had two gyms. They had a, uh, their regular basketball gym, and they had a smaller gym they called the girls' gym. And the girls' gym was only used for uh, the girls' physical activities during the school day. It wasn't used any other time. It was except for, you know, maybe they had a dance on a Friday night or something. And so a lot of the guys started getting together and training on Saturday. And Steve Sanders had a group in the park. And, you know, I had a group that I was training at Manual Arts High School. We had an after-school club. And um, we all just started getting together training on Saturday, and it kind of grew over time to the point where we had people coming from as far away as San Diego, you know, Lloyd, Lloyd Francis and Ornette Gabriel was coming, you know, from down there, and they'd bring a bunch of guys, and then from Northern California, the Tracy guys would come down from Santa Barbara and train and everything in between, and it was uh, a mixture of all the different styles you could come up with in the martial arts. And the only thing that we had in common is that the majority of us were black. And just became a thing, you know, Lima Lama, you know, Gung Fu, Shotokan, Hapkido. Uh, Kempo was actually a minority. It was just probably just, just Steve and I were, were the Kempo representation. But it was, it was an eclectic group of guys, and we just got together and trained on Saturday and exchanged information. And it kind of morphed into this idea of creating a, some type of formal organization. The original idea for the BKF, uh, a great deal of that credit has to go to uh, Ed Parker, who had also done the same thing with uh, Lima Lama. That, too, was something that he kind of encouraged. So uh, it wasn't unusual. It wasn't unusual. Mr. Parker always... Uh, was very positive about the martial arts, no matter who was doing it or what style it was. He was all about promoting the martial arts in general. And the idea of the BKF came from some dissension in, because we, as a group, we were doing really well in competition, but some of the guys were complaining because they had to compete against each other. And so I asked him, uh, you know, is there something we can do about that, considering Mr. Parker had the world's largest 
uh, you know, competition in the IKC. And he said, yeah, it's really simple. He says, Ron, if you have an organization, there's an informal rule that says in the first couple of rounds, you don't have to keep compete against anyone from your own organization or own school or style even. I said, I didn't know that. He said, yeah, it's informal, but everybody, everybody abides by it. So that kind of prompted the idea. He said, so if you form a formal organization, then you guys that are training together don't have to, uh, don't have to compete against each other in the early rounds. And that idea kind of uh, pushed me toward talking about with uh, Cliff Stewart, Dr. Stewart, and uh, you know, Grandmaster Jerry Smith, this whole idea of putting together a black karate organization. And that's pretty much how it came about. And so that would have been towards the mid to late 60s? Yes, absolutely. Just, just past the mid-60s. And it was a very, very interesting time, too, because Mr. Parker was going through some significant transformations at that time, too. Uh, he was in the midst of creating... Uh, what people now know is Ed Parker's Kempo Karate. Sounds like just an absolutely fascinating place to be in history. It, it was and is, and I could talk about that stuff all day long. I mean, it's just there were just so many, so many characters, so many different people who had influences on just about everyone, and and the nuances of how everything comes together is really, really fascinating. Okay, tell me more. Well, once again, uh, everybody was in, within a half an hour drive. And in those days, Thursday nights were considered, you know, anyone could go to any school on Thursday night and work out and train and exchange information. It was just kind of a given that everything always fell on that Thursday. And so you could go up to, uh, for example, Chuck Sullivan was running the uh, Kempo School. Uh, it used to be on Crenshaw, and then it moved out on uh, La Brea near Century Boulevard in, uh, in Inglewood. And if you wanted, to, you wanted to fight, you went out to Chuck Sullivan's on Thursday night, and you could get a good fight. Chuck was on the floor banging with people, uh, Big John Henderson. It was just, that's where you went if you wanted to scuffle. And if you wanted to get more esoteric, you could go over to Jimmy Woo's. Or if you wanted to get deeper into the Japanese arts, there was Heidi Takanishima, Oshima was on Hollywood Boulevard, Kubota was down there across the street from Hollywood High School. They were just there. And of course, there's Ed Parker in Pasadena. There was, uh, you wanted to get into uh, a version of Hapkido, you could go over on Crenshaw and Jefferson, or you can go over to Huntington Park. The Jubang Subang brothers who ended up creating their own Harang-do are actually originally uh, Hapkido students under C.O. Choi. We used to go out there. That big mural they have on the side of the building used to say Hapkido, and then it miraculously changed when they quit Choi. It turned into Harang-do. But it was, just, it was just a great time, man. It was just so much, so much fun. Everyone was open and free and exchanged information, and everybody visited everybody. There were so few martial artists, if you found someone that actually knew what you were talking about in the martial arts, you know, it could spawn a conversation that could last forever. It was just so few of us, so everybody was very open and willing to share and, and exchange experiences. It was a great time to be alive Sounds in the martial like arts. It. it was, it was.
we we lived and breathed it. Uh, Doctor Stewart and I go back uh, pretty far. You know, from high school we worked together. Right out of high school, we worked for uh, the Los Angeles City School District uh, Youth Services section, working in the community, working with kids. We uh, were uh, working on the on the playground, after school programs. In the summer, became full time, which was great. While we were going to UCLA, we we, we had a ball, man. We had an absolute ball. You're making me jealous just thinking about it there. Well, man, the stuff that we did on our playground, you know, uh, we had uh, people who ultimately became pretty famous, you know. Uh, the late Bernie Casey was there, you know. Uh, uh, Tracy Reed was there. Uh, Judge Joe Brown, now Judge Joe Brown, who we, we went to school with. Joe became a Rhodes Scholar out of UCLA. We were all running buddies in, at uh, UCLA. Cliff and I taught the Black Student Union uh, self-defense. And I wrote a column for the for the black student uh, newspaper, Nomo. I used to write a jazz column for that and reviewed music. And you know, Lou Alcindor and Henry Bibby were playing basketball. And you know, Angela Davis was down the street. You know, it was just that time, man. It was great. That's awesome. So I think we've covered a real good background there on where you started. And let's talk some more about where you're at now. So you're head of the Marshall All Science right, University. Now, the Marshall Science University is my attempt at kind of continuing something that Mr. Parker wanted to do. He wanted to formalize the uh, the martial arts. He looked at uh, you know Mr. Parker was an academic, and he uh, was a very intelligent man. He had had twin degrees in uh, psychology and sociology, but at heart he was a real educator. He had a very unique way of imparting information so that most people could understand it. And he thought that the martial arts should be on a par with any of the other arts that uh, had been formalized in an academic and educational environment so that you could get a, an academic degree. And it was his hope that one day the martial arts would reach that level as well. And so that's kind of like what I've been doing formalizing and structuring a martial arts program so that you be put in a university-type setting. So everything that we do, we approach it from that academic perspective first, and then it has a physical component, obviously. But that's, that's kind of like the dream that I'm trying to push forward, and it's probably not going to happen in my, my lifetime, but I have so many smart and intelligent students, you know, that there's no way that it won't happen sometime. Ultimately, it would get there. I mean, if you can get a degree in social justice, why can't you get a degree in the martial arts? You know, <laughs> that's just the way I see it. And uh, it'll happen. Just give it time. It'll happen. Guys like like you and some of the, some of the smarter, uh, intelligent people that are in the arts these days, sooner or later it's going to happen. It would just be nice that if, Marshall Science University would be uh, the entity to take the lead in, in some type of endeavor like that. And that would make Mr. Parker very happy, I'm sure. Okay, so let's talk about student stuff here. So uh, what advice do you give your students to help them stay motivated or persevere with their training? The hardest thing to do is to stay consistent. And consistency is everything. Cons consistency 
and staying disciplined and focused. It's so easy to get distracted. That's going to be the biggest biggest problem that anyone would have if they're looking at any long-term development of martial arts. You know, things happen. You know, for me, it was it was school. It was you know uh, a marriage. It was you know job. It just everything just keeps coming at you. Life just keeps coming at you. And if you really think about it, martial arts is a luxury. It's not something you gotta have. You know, work you gotta work. You know, if you got a wife, you gotta deal with the wife and kids and and just trying to make your way and and advance in life. And the martial arts is really, in many ways, it can be an impediment to that. So staying focused, disciplined, and maintaining consistency. You know, getting up, going, and suiting up and getting on the floor, no matter what, even when you don't feel like it. That's the key. Yeah, it's amazing. Everybody I talk to that's uh, from your generation has the exact same advice. It's always about consistency. Maybe maybe there's something to that. You know what I mean? Might be. You know, it's amazing. You guys seem to know what you're talking about, and everybody's saying the same thing. So, hmm, good advice. It's it's hard. It it truly is hard, and you you get a you get a sense of appreciation for how hard it is uh, throughout my years of teaching, I don't think anyone's attendance has been better than mine. Even when I don't have to be there, I'm there. Some of the guys will tell you stories of my going into the hospital and having surgery and leaving the hospital and going straight to the school to see what they're doing. And all that stuff is true. If I'm not mistaken, I remember a story about somebody waking up from surgery and telling somebody to fix their feet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was Dr. Crouch. Uh, Dr. Crouch uh, came to visit me when I was in the hospital. He was there when I uh, came out of recovery. <laughs> and uh, when I opened my eyes, he was standing there, and that was just the first thing that came to my mind, fix your feet. <laughs> I'm going to have Dr. Crouch on our podcast here at some point, too, so it should be fun. I'm, I'm still mad at him. Um uh, because before I had the surgery, we had talked about it, and he explained some things to me about the surgery. And, oh, it's going to be this and that, and they're going to do this and that, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and he's just going to smart a little bit, you know. I go, oh, okay. See, I didn't know that the term smart from where Dr. Crouch comes from translate into that's really going to hurt, you know, from where I come from. And so when it... I felt all that pain. I got a little pissed off at him. I said, you could have been a little bit more explicit in telling me it was really going to hurt instead of just going to smart. That wasn't a word that I was accustomed to. <laughs> Dr. Grouse is a great guy. He's a brilliant man, too. I had to mute my audio because I was laughing so hard over here. You <laughs> <laughs> know, that's going to smart. Basically, that's a white boy term, you know. That's not how we would say it. <laughs> Isn't he Hawaiian? I thought he was Hawaiian. Uh, he, he's a mixture of everything, just like everybody else is. <laughs> okay, so let's continue on the student track. I'm liking where this is going. So, um, <clears throat> What's the single most important thing you look for when you decide someone's ready to test and, and go for their black belt? I actually don't. Um, I actually don't even focus on, on belts. 
I focus on uh, competency, and the the whole belt thing kind of kind of takes care of itself. Uh, I teach from the curriculum, and as they develop the competency, then the belt just kind of follows it. But I, I don't. Uh, I don't make a big deal out of it. And for black belt, people say, well, don't you, aren't you interested in character and, you know, honesty and community and all those other good things? Well, no, not really. And there's a reason for that. Um, one, the number one thing in a physical activity that you engage in that potentially could have life-saving implications is competency. Competency is absolutely number one. Everything I do is absolutely driven by competency, first and foremost. The other issues of character, etc., those things are taken care of in the process of obtaining competency. And those people who don't have the character or have character flaws, usually somewhere in the process, those character flaws are exposed and those people tend to leave. So I never had to focus on any of those things. If you just train the way you're supposed to and train for competency, the people that don't belong will weed themselves out, and the people that belong will stay, and ultimately they arrive at their goals. They just keep coming without really focusing on goals. One of the things about the business of the martial arts is it's just the opposite. Everything is goal-oriented to retain students. Retention is everything in business because if you, if you, if you lose 20 students, you've got to replace them with 20 just to stay even. And so uh, everything is built around the next belt as a, as a carrot, as a motivational tool to keep people there. We don't do that. Our goal is competency first, and the belts will take care of themselves. If I could do away with the belts, I would, but that's kind of, you know, Jigger O'Connell stuck us with the belts, and so that, that's where we are. He, he's the, the progenitor of the whole belt system, so that's infected the whole martial arts world. Okay, so I'm going to dovetail off of us for a minute before we come back to talking some more about your, your uh, students and your lineage. <clears throat> A.C. Wiley gave me a great question here, so I'm going to use it. It says, uh, Bruce Lee, Ed Parker, Jigger O'Connell, or Gichin Funakoshi, and I'm going to say you need to give me somebody besides Ed Parker because I know how influential it is for you. So uh, pick the most influential two and why. So you got Bruce Lee, Jigoro Kano, Gichin Funakoshi, and if you want to throw another name in there, go ahead. Well, I think, uh, you know, you want to leave out Ed Parker, but you can't. You know, Ed Parker and Jigoro Kano were both educators, and that's the distinctive difference to me. Some, some have said that I'm a natural-born educator because I'm also an information junkie. Mr. Parker called me an information junkie. Me and Dennis Kanatsa. Dennis Kanatsa called a rat pack. Me called an information junkie. But we were, you know, essentially the same. The martial arts, if it's taught properly, is no different from any other academic endeavor. The only difference is it has a physical component to it. And Jigoro Kano, who was the creator of judo, he was an academic, he was an educator, much like Ed Parker. 
and Ed Parker was the first person to approach the martial arts from an academic perspective and say, hey, you need to have specific terminology, you need to define principles and ideas and concepts, and you need to present them in a cogent manner. And no one had ever done that before. So uh, the whole idea of the educational and academic approach uh, is very, very significant. And so for me, it would be Ed Parker, Jigen O'Connell for those two reasons. Fair enough. I was trying to see, see if I could prompt you for somebody besides Ed Parker because I know how influential he is, but that's fine. We'll put him back in. It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to ignore an icon. You know, it's like the 300-pound elephant in a small room. Where are you going to go? Okay, so let's go back to talking about your lineage. Uh, so we covered what it, what's the important things you're looking for when somebody's training. You, you kind of weed out the character flaws just by nature of training. So by the time people become competent, then the belt system just takes care of itself for you. So yeah, let's take that to the yeah. next step, step. What are you looking for when you're training people to be future instructors and then future teachers? Well, see, that's the thing. For me, there's no difference uh, between students and uh, teachers in terms of, of, of training. I teach from the perspective of I am trying to create instructors. I'm not training people to be competent just so that they can be competent for themselves. I'm training instructors, and that, too, has a, a process that tends to push people away who are very myopic in, in their approach and just want to, you know, I just want to be a badass. Most people don't last because I'm forcing them to do things and understand things that if all they want to do is be proficient, you know, they probably don't need. But I'm trying to cultivate teachers and instructors, not just practitioners. That's how I teach uh, let's say I'm starting out. So I'm somebody brand new, walking in the door. Uh, somebody from class brought me over after they talked to you about me. Said, okay, I'm going to bring this guy in. So you've got five minutes to teach me something I'm going to practice for the next month. So what do you teach me? Five minutes. I probably would present to you some type of word puzzle to make you think. It wouldn't be physical at all. You have to understand that my very first lesson with Mr. Parker, I uh, had suited up, I had McGee on, I had warmed up, stretched, sweating a little bit, and he walked in the room and we went and sat down in the office. And two hours later, we came out. He never stood up, he never threw a punch, a kick, never did a technique. All we did was talk about terminology, how you structure the art, how everyone has to be on the same page by using the same terminology, having the same understanding of physical principles, etc. And he talked to me about how he was organizing things. He actually showed me, uh, he, had, he said, I carry three briefcases. He said, one briefcase, I have all these ideas that I want to do. He said, the other briefcase, I have ideas that I'm working on. These things are in progress. And then he says, I have another briefcase where the ideas are finished and complete, and I'm beginning to organize them so that they relate to each other. And that's all we talked about. And he stressed the importance of understanding not what you think, but how you think. And that's encapsulated in, in a phrase he used to use all the time. 
He says, if you don't ask me the right questions, I can't give you the right answers. And if you don't know the right questions to ask me, then you're not ready for the answers anyway. And that always stuck with me because he used to repeat that all the time. He kept emphasizing the thought process, how you approach things. So I'd come up with, uh, I'd probably say, hey, open your hand, okay? Imagine you have two coins in your hand, okay? See two coins? Yeah, okay, close your hand. Now imagine that those two coins are a quarter and a nickel. And I said, I want you to understand that the quarter and a nickel are the coins that formulate 30 cents, right? He goes, yeah. I say, but what if I told you one of those coins wasn't a nickel? What would you have in your hand? That's the question. And the answer is? Still trying to formulate 30 cents? Yeah. Well, what's the other, what's the other coin then? Exactly. Exactly. You see, when I tell you that one of the coins isn't a nickel, the first thing you did was you eliminated the nickel. That's the thought process that people fall into. But the reality is the two coins are still a quarter and a nickel because a quarter is not a nickel. You have a nickel and a quarter as opposed to a quarter to a nickel. Same thing. Mm -hmm. But when I tell you that one of them isn't a nickel, then you go, oh, well, how am I going to do this? Because the nickel, no, you, you don't eliminate the nickel. You just recognize that the nickel is only one of two coins. Yeah, one of them is it's not, does not mean the other one isn't. Exactly. Good way to get people's heads moving. Well, yeah. I want people to understand that it's as much of an academic process as it is a physical one. And it's not what you think, it's how you think. How you approach things. Uh, Mr. Parker had a unique way of looking at a particular problem and he could walk around the problem in his own mind's eye and see it from different perspectives and then come up with a, a working solution. But that entailed the ability to think outside the box, if you will. So now when people start training, how hard is it to get them to stop thinking outside the box and do what you're asking them to do? Well, we have our moments. Uh, I want people to think outside the box, but at the same time, when we're working on, uh, you know, certain things, the physical aspect has to take over. You know, you, you don't want to drift so far into the intellectual that it takes away from the reps of the physical that you need to be confident. You know, I had to coin a term. Uh, one of my guys, my son, Brad Bodie, you know, I have a lot of ado adopted kids. Brad Bodie's a brilliant young man, and when I first got him, all he did was bombard me with questions because he was, he was just really, really very smart. And he would do that while we're trying to physically perform something. And so I coined the term uh, Bodie. Don't Bodie me. In other words, don't bombard me incessantly with questions that if you just be quiet and wait a little while, the answers will be revealed to you. I even put it in our terminology, the Bodhi. Don't Bodhi me. <laughs> and there's an electronic version too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that, that's, that's, that's the hard part, you know. You've got to keep people on point. People, you know, a lot of the, the Ed Parker's Kempo Karate, 
there's a big deal made about the what if. And what ifs are great. But one of the lessons that taught to me by Mr. Parker was uh, I, I, would, I would do the same. I would bode Mr. Parker. And he would say, well, what's more important to you? That you understand every nuance of what I'm trying to show you physically or that you physically be able to do it? Which is most important to you right now, today? And I would say, well, the physical. He said, well, then concentrate on the physical because the whys will come to you a little bit at a time. You will have spurts where you just, oh, okay, I understand that. Oh, wow, I, I get it now. And it will just come to you. And then there will be long stretches where you'll just be doing something and doing something because I told you to. But ultimately, when you come out on the other end, the physicality will feed into the other side, the intellectual side, and they merge together. But keep in mind, you can have all the explanations in the world of why something works, but without the physical experience to put it in context, the information is it's just purely academic, and we're talking about a physical activity. And we have a lot of academic black belts who couldn't fight their way out of, you know, the Girl Scouts bathroom if they had to. So, fair enough. Okay. We see them all the time. we see them all the time on the internet. We call them keyboard warriors, right? They write eloquently and talk about all these terms and principles, and then when you see them in person, you realize the extent of their martial arts skill is only on a keyboard. Okay, without getting too far down that path, let's switch gears. <laughs> I mean, see, if you're talking about it, if you're going back towards the 60s, you've got to have had, what, upwards of 3,000 students somewhere in that ballpark? I've never really thought about it, but probably more than that, because... I initially started teaching, you know, I started training when I was about 10. So by the time I was 12, 13, I was teaching kids in the neighborhood. And then uh, ultimately I began teaching kids on the playground. And that kind of extended it to when I was actually working on the playground, you know, teaching kids on the playground when I was uh, in the secondary school system, LA City Schools, I was teaching an after-school program at Manual Arts High School. So I've always had this huge group of people that I've worked with. If you can imagine, you're at a high school that has you know, 3,500, 3, 4,000 students. You're running an after-school club every, every semester. You're running people through there like crazy. Same thing, youth services. They're coming to you. So probably a lot more than that, uh, way, way more than that. Okay, good. So that means you it's know, a, fair, a fair question here, that. So thinking about yeah. all those people that you've been you know, associated with and or taught and or trained alongside of, so without naming any names, um, think about the one, the most memorable person that you trained that didn't stick with it. So what is it about that person that makes them so memorable? Well, that's easy. That's everybody. There is no one person. Nobody sticks with it. Everybody gets sidelined for periods of time. It's the nature of life. Only the teacher is the constant. I have, listen, I got to tell you, I have, I have been lucky enough 
to have some of the nicest people study with me, uh, just the nicest, great people, people that you want to be related to, people you want to be your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister. I mean, just great, great people. And very smart. Very, very smart people. Some of them smarter than me. And they help to keep me on my toes. But at the end of the day, life intervenes. And so some people stay for long periods of time. Some stay for shorter. Some stay for a period of time, leave and come back, and then leave again. That's just the nature of life. I have one student. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Robert Eisenhart. He began studying with me uh, right after Mr. Parker passed away in 1990. He was a chiropractor. He had, uh, he had taught school. He was a chiropractor. And he studied with me till he was, oh, I think he made green belt. And he was fascinated by some of the tales we used to tell in class from law enforcement because I always had a significant number of law enforcement students. And he got so into it that he closed his practice and joined a major law enforcement agency. And he stayed there, made detective, made sergeant, and he retired, and he came back and started training again. And since then, he's made third-degree black belt since he came back. So one of the things that I, I have always pride, prided myself in, and my record is unbroken so far, is when people leave me, they either quit the arts altogether or they come back. I've never had a student leave me to go train with someone else. But everybody leaves sooner or later. Some of them come back, many of them don't. That was a pretty solid answer there. We got a lot of information out of that one. Okay. So the lesson I'm getting from that is uh, that everybody needs to get back to training. Well, yeah. You know, it's hard. You know, you get married, you have babies, and, you know, work, and then you have another baby, and you get promoted on your job, and responsibilities change. It's, it's, it's tough. But if, if you really, uh, really love what you do, you have to set aside that time and you know, make make room for it. That is, even if it's that only is the one balancing act. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a absolute balancing act. Even if it's only one day a week, you got to get in there and you got to do it. I've heard people say, "Well, you know, one day a week's not enough." I say, "Well, one one day a week's better than no days a week." That's right. That's absolutely right. So, do what you got to do. Uh, I've had students come into school and they're sick. And they're sitting there, and I go, dude, what, what are you doing here? He says, it's teaching night. You know, I've got to be here. I said, but you're not doing well. He says, no, you don't understand. If my wife figures out that I'm willing to stay home when I'm not feeling well, she'll have me stay home a lot. So it's really important to me that she understands that this, night is my night 
and I'm going to take that night no matter what. I don't give her any wiggle room to say, well, you know, you didn't go last time, so why don't you stay home tonight? Nice. <laughs> and uh, I- I'll give you a classic example of that. My, my oldest student, who's also a former student of Ed Parker, and a great guy, he's my personal hero, and he's the only Grand Master. He's the only one that holds the title of Grand Master in what we do. Is Lincoln Conte. Lincoln Conte is 77 years old. He'll be 78 in February. He doesn't miss class. He just doesn't. He's there. He's, you can count on him. He's the only person who's there more than me. Because he lives not that far from the school. When I get there, he's there. And he's 77 years old. And he's on the floor, and he's doing everything that everybody else is doing. He's getting yelled at. He's getting corrected and fussed at just like everybody else. He and probably he, hated that he, you mentioned him, too. Probably. <laughs> but as, as, he, as he once told me, he says, Ron, if it wasn't for you, I'd probably been dead years ago. See, this is what, keep, this is what keeps me alive. And I said, me too. <laughs> so what do you think is the most rewarding thing about your journey? Seeing my students get it, seeing my students grow and, and become productive citizens and, and good people in our society, watching a Ryan Angel go from a snotty 17-year-old to being a, a married guy with a couple of kids doing well in his business, you know, the same thing with you know, Brad Bodie, you know, and I got him, he was a long-haired, purple belt kid, you know. Now he's got his own company, he's married to a beautiful woman, two beautiful kids. You know, Rod Perez, same thing. And I can go on and on and on to see how these people just grow. Uh, Armando, Armando uh, Vieira. And I got him, he was uh, working for an exterminator company. And he wanted to study, so I began to teach him. And he did very well. But I told him he couldn't get his black belt until he got a bachelor's degree. So what did he do? He went and got a bachelor's degree. And when he wanted to make third, I said, go get your master's. And in between there, I convinced him that he could, should work for the sheriff's department. He didn't think he could do it. I convinced him that he could. He went into the sheriff's department. He's doing very well. He recently got a promotion. Just seeing people grow and get married and have kids and do well, that's that's everything to me. That's family. To think that maybe, just maybe, I had a little bit of influence on some of these people to kind of send them in the right direction and to do the right thing and to be good people and lead by by example instead of telling people, hey, this is what you need to do. Just kind of show them. Mr. Parker at one point in time, I had anticipated that I was going to have a son. didn't work out that way. I have nothing but girls. My own estrogen mafia, if you will. But I asked him, I said, listen, how do you, how do you raise a son to be a man? Because it was really important to me. You know, my own background, you know, growing up in the the hood or the ghetto, if you will. You know, my father passed away when I was six months old, so I, I grew up without a father. And so it was 
there were some difficult times there. And the martial arts kept me grounded, kept me focused, kept me out of trouble. So that was my question to him. How do you raise your son to be a man? And the answer surprised me. He said, you don't. I said, what do you mean? He says, you don't really raise your son to be a man. He says, first thing you got to do is be one yourself and let him watch you, and he will emulate you, and he will be the man that you are. So everything that you say and do, just keep that in mind. There's another body over there that's emulating you, and what they're going to become is based primarily on who you are. That's amazing advice. I'm, I've got a two-year-old son myself right now, and I'm hoping one day he'll grow up and be proud of who I was and want to be somebody who'll be an upstanding citizen in the world, too. Exactly. And I found it, I found his answer quite profound, and I never forgot that. And I watched him and how he conducted himself in front of his son, you know, my, my brother, because I'd known him since he was three. At one point, I was Uncle Ron. He got older, became a dog, we became brothers. But as men do, we would hang out when he was younger, and we would tell jokes, and, you know, we'd tell off-color jokes and things. And then when his son walked into the room, the atmosphere changed. He always presented a persona in front of his son that he wanted him to emulate. You know, he never used profanity in front of his son. He never told off-color jokes. He never said or did anything that would have a negative impact on his son. And that was an important thing, very, very important. And I never forgot that. That was a, a hell of a lesson in and of itself. All right, so speaking of lessons, let's, uh, let's switch gears again. If you could train with anybody from the history or the present, other than somebody you've already trained with, who would you train with and why? <clears throat> to be honest, I can't think of anybody. I feel that I have been blessed to have been in the presence of the best there is ever. And I couldn't see changing that. I couldn't I, I really couldn't think of anybody in the past that could equal what I have been lucky enough to experience. That's high praise for your teacher. And I can't say I'm surprised at all. So let's take this out of a martial arts context. If you could have a conversation with anybody from history of the present, who would you talk to? That's an excellent question. I'd probably have to think about that a bit. Hmm. I'm going to pride myself on momentarily stumping Doc for once in my life. No, it's a question I never thought about. Uh, that's a good one. You know, you have to recognize, I grew up in a very, very interesting time in this country. You know, I watched Lee Harvey Oswald get shot on live TV. I mean, I was watching it. I'm sitting here. They're bringing Lee Harvey Oswald down. Oh, okay. And I'm saying to myself, wow, you know what? Somebody might shoot. Oh, shit. <laughs> Boom. It happened. I saw it on live TV. I was alive when they assassinated Malcolm X. I was alive when Martin Luther King was shot. I was alive. I was in high school when 
Kennedy was assassinated, and so forth and so on, Bobby Kennedy. So what people consider history is just memories to me. It's, it was such a such a wild time to be alive to see all these things unfold right in front of you. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Now we could take that you know back to four thousand years history if you really wanted to. I mean, is there you know go to philosophy, go to you know whatever subject floats your boat. Uh, yeah, but you you know you could go Pythagoras. You know, you, you, I mean, you could go you could go almost anywhere. Really, if you think about it, you know, Aristotle, Da Vinci, Da Vinci would be a cool guy to hang out with. Yeah, he's on my high list as well. Yeah, yeah. Da Vinci, you know, he, we're still finding things that he pioneered that we're trying to figure out exactly how he did that. So, okay, I got really an answer for list. you. Oh, cool! What you got? Nikola Tesla. Good choice. So, what about Tesla drives you that way? Well, once again, he was unconventional in many ways. He was like Ed Parker. Whatever everybody else was doing, no matter how large that crowd was. He always thought for himself, and that often took him in directions that were against the tide. You know, if you think about the feud between, uh, uh, what's his face, God, I'm drawing a blank here, Tesla and... Uh, Edison. Edison, yes, thank you. If you think about just that, you know, here you got this icon, Thomas Edison, who's saying... You know, in terms of electricity, we need to go in this direction. We need to do direct current. And you have this nobody who says, no, we need to go alternating current. And this went on for a period of time where they, it ultimately ended up in court and everything. They fought. It was like, you know, VHS and Betamax. You know, they were going at it. And guess who won? At the end of the day, Tesla won. He was right. And one of the things that Mr. Parker would always point out, he says, listen, when you get in these discussions, when you start to work on these things, and the tide is against you, the number one thing you have to make sure is that your ego is not part of the equation. Because once your ego becomes part of the equation, it will drive you potentially in the wrong direction. So always keep your ego in check. And some people referred to uh, Nikola Tesla as the mad scientist. That also sounds familiar for some reason. Uh, yeah, I've been known as the, the mad scientist of the martial arts, the mad martial scientist. Uh, you know, years ago it was mad Kempo scientist. I think you wrote kind of an entire on. series of articles with that as the title, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Diary, uh, excerpts from the diary of a mad chemical scientist. There you go. And <laughs> I only use the term mad because, you know, it was kind of a play on words because a lot of people thought I was crazy, some of the things that I talked about. And a lot of people were angry that I would cast any doubt on their sacred religion of how and what things were all about in Ed Parker's Kempo Karate. 
well, Ed Parker never did this, Ed Parker never did that. I said, listen, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you personally know all the nuances of everything Ed Parker ever did in his life because you'll be wrong. You may be aware of what he exposed you to, but anyone who knew Ed Parker knows that he shared different things with different people. And he had a habit of sharing with you only things that you could absorb. They are things that he would share with other people that would, might be completely different because their capabilities and understandings were different. I came out of Ark Long. My understanding was different, so he shared with me things that fit the perspective that I was familiar with. There's, you know, it's not good or bad. One's not better than the other. It's just different. And you have to be willing to accept that. And unfortunately, people think that, you know, whatever they learned, you know, began with Ed Parker and somehow or other evolved down to where they are without recognizing that there's so many different branches and offshoots. Every time Mr. Parker taught someone something, and he taught it differently from someone else that he taught, he created another splinter. So it's not one evolutionary line that culminated at your feet. It's everywhere. So once again, if you approach things more academically and take the ego out of it, you'll be much better off and you start to see things in a different light. Obviously, Ed Parker was by far the most significant person in your martial journey. So who else was a significant person in your journey that wasn't one of your instructors? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Actually, you can, you can say uh, Douglas Wong, Grandmaster Douglas Wong. He's, I go back further into martial arts with Douglas Wong than anybody. Uh, Doug and I grew up together. Uh, he's the one that was instrumental in getting me started with Ark Wong. Uh, he's just a phenomenal human being, you know. And the, the influence he's had has been tremendous if not only from that perspective but others but then it depends you got to realize I'm over 70 years old all of these people that I have the, 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 the fortune to, to know and be influenced by I mean Dr. Carl Totten you know we go we go way back Cliff Stewart we go way back and these people have been in my life my entire life Cliff Cliff Stewart Dr. Stewart he's he helped to shape my educational background. He helped to uh, kind of foster the, the idea of formal education, much like Ed Parker did, you know. I went to L.A. City College. You know, back then we used to call it Vermont High School. This is back in the days when they didn't call them community colleges. They called them junior colleges. And Cliff was instrumental in getting me involved in some special programs and ultimately getting into UCLA. It was Cliff Stewart who did that. So, Dr. Stewart, big time for that. You know, uh, I came out of an environment, you know, Cliff, Cliff came out of a little bit different environment than I, I did. I came out of an environment, I didn't have a dad, you know, I knocked around and just like every other kid and, uh, you know, trying to find some direction. And he helped solidify that direction for me, you know. His parents pushed him uh, 
in that direction, and he drugged me along with him. You know, in fact, uh, his mom was was really great. His mom treated me like a son when I first got into uniform law enforcement because I was in law enforcement before that. But when I first got into uh, uniform, uh, she worked at one of the locations where I used to see her on a regular basis, and she took care of me. You know, when I come through there, she's great. She told everybody, "This is this is my son. When he comes through here, take care of him," and they did. I can't wait to do part two on these guys. That's going to be fun. All right, oh, so. you see, I I could do that all day long. Jerry Smith, when I when we met Jerry Smith, Jerry Smith was still in the Marine Corps. He was working apprehension. He was going after AWOLs. So this has been an awesome hour of conversation ish. Uh, I think we probably ran a little bit long, but that's uh, how it always goes. I uh, love talking to you, Doc. I really appreciate you taking your time out of the day today. So let me ask one final for the day. Uh, what does your future hold? Oh, gee, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, it's not generally known. I've just come through a, a significant bout with uh, cancer, and uh, I'm not completely through with that. So, you know, that uh, future is an unknown and uh but it always is so i i don't i don't put any significance in that it's just you never know uh what's coming to you and when you get to be a certain age you stop looking so much toward the future and you begin to look backwards more because at least you you know what's coming but as far as the future is concerned i'm hoping that uh my students will pick up the mantle and uh keep going and turn uh, the Marshall Science University into what uh, Mr. Parker and I envisioned it to be. And, uh, you know, just keep pushing forward. For me personally, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and that's uh, creating and writing curriculum and making sure that it's a, a formal system unlike any other. It is on paper, academically, and not just an outline, but all the information that you need to, to actually be successful in the martial arts, taught in a manner that uh, the majority of students will be competent instead of a minority. And that's about it, really. Those are some laudable goals, sir. So if people want to get uh, a hold of you, how do, we get them, how do they get a hold of you? Oh, uh, my, my public email address is uh, doc doc chappelle my last name c h a p e l doc chappelle at gmail dot com or they can go to the msu site msuacf.com and there's a facebook page out there too with my name and face on it but i'm not really on the facebook page my facebook page is really administered to by various students so when you see something on there don't try to send me anything, anything through facebook because i don't go on facebook all right so get them through doc chappelle at gmail.com or visit the website www.msuacf.com yep. dr chappelle thank you so much for taking time out of your day for me today i'm uh, really looking forward to part two and i really enjoyed this conversation appreciate it buddy always a pleasure always a pleasure all righty, you have yourself a great rest of your day. Thanks, buddy.
That was a great chat with Doc. He's been at it for a long, long time and was there for some of the pivotal moments in martial arts history in the 1960s that gave birth to the directions a lot of styles are moving today. I always enjoy hearing what Doc has to say, and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Special shout out again to our team, the Podbean team, Anastasio Vasquez and Marcus Moore. Episode 3 will feature Grandmaster Armando Deloa. Hear about his early years training in San Jose. Did you know he was in the running to be in the Ninja Turtles movies? He's taught some amazing students and has a lot of interesting experiences working with the SoCal education system. Coming soon! Once again, we are here to spread positivity. Share your story, hear about other people's journeys. We're all on this planet together. Let's keep moving forward. Again, find us at artistofmotion.com, iTunes, Google Play, our Facebook page, Artist of Motion, email at pod at artistofmotion.com. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.